Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, uh, Dr. Santosh, after dark, calling oh, yeah. you from, oh, oh we, can, we can totally do after dark. I'm especially after dark because not only is it dark outside, Josh, but I just got my eyes dilated for my eye exam. So like I'm like I'm in the dark in the dark wearing these like cool looking eye shades. So we'll have to keep things hidden, clandestine, keep it secret, keep it safe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have to just, you know, keep everything on the down low and in the dark. Well, welcome back to season seven as we prepare to launch another clearly tangential episode of medicine, this time <laughs> focused on... Da-da-da. Espionage. <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, not stock mouth music. Um, I'd like to see somebody try to sue us for that. <laughs> it's not happening. So I figured it is Halloween, which, as we all know, for me now starts somewhere around September. Mm-hmm. And the first spooky thing I wanted to focus on was some of the medical tools and tests that would be available to and threatened to various spies in the most famous spying period, the Cold War. Oh, yes, yes. So we had all kinds of like shady and scary things going on, definitely in the spy world, certainly medically related. So... Um, yeah, some of my weirdest tech medical stuff came around from Cold War. Yeah, so let's 
we're going to talk about a couple different ones. But first, Santosh, when I tell you Cold War spy, what are some of the things you're thinking? What are the gadgets that we can try and break down medically or the tips and tricks and techniques? What's your spy code name? Uh, my code uh, is um, double O fro. Although I don't really have a license to kill, maybe just like a single O fro. You are a licensed physician and surgeon, so you kind of do. And, uh, but I can't. <laughs> you can't. And, and I'm trying to get my palliative care, so I. It's <laughs> okay. That's what editing's for, buddy. <laughs> oh dear. That's what editing's for. But just leave the part in where you said that's what editing's for. And so people are just sitting there like scratching their heads going, what's editing for? <laughs> yeah. So when you think of a Cold War era spy, what are some of the first things that come to mind? Uh, so I, you know, you have the fun gadgets to like, you, the, to kill other people. So, you know, you like the hidden guns and, you know, gas and, and poison and all this kind of a thing. But you also have, uh, some life saving stuff too. So you have, uh, little kits that you can carry with antidotes if you need them. Um, I guess on the darker side of things, which isn't really medicine, but you do have, you know, things to deliver poison and truth serums. Um, you probably have like really bad, scary, horrible interrogation techniques um, to stress the body and the mind. Uh, those are some medical stuff. Um, we probably develop things for breathing apparatus in order to uh, do, you know, compact oxygen delivery and that kind of a thing. If you needed to do, you know, something at altitude or under the sea and and you had Cold War, right? So that's all nuclear stuff. So you probably had a few things talking about preventing, you know, if you were in a radiation zone or something like that and, and rescuing yourself from that. So. so before we go into some of the more fantastical elements and break down were they real and how would they work, uh -huh. I just want to tell you a little bit about what medicine was like in Russia during this time, during the period of the Cold War. Okay. Um, some of the stuff was done a little differently. Uh, before heart surgery, for example, was performed on Russian children at the Institute of Circulation and Pathology in Novosibirsk, their okay. heart would be stopped by just placing their entire body into a bag of ice cubes, lowering what? the temperature, lowering the body temperature to 72 degrees. This yeah. is done to avoid oxygen dehydration. Now, in the U.S., uh, during the same period of time, I believe we did have access to heart and lung machines. Okay. So they just, you know, dropped them in the ice, put them in, put them in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, the Russians also pioneered during the Cold War laser eye surgery. Uh, Ooh. Moscow ophthalmologist Sviatoslav Fyodorov made a fortune treating nearsightedness with an assembly line. He would make an incision in the cornea and insert a corrective lens, and he could treat eight patients at once on tables arranged around him like a roulette wheel. Okay. And, but wait, but wait. Okay. Five surgeons each perform one step of the operation, and when they finish, the tables are rotated, advancing the patients to the next station. My, how the... Tables have turned. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. This definitely was not the inspiration for any kind of Bond villain trap. Uh, <laughs> but Fyodorov would monitor the procedure on closed circuit televisions, and interviews with him said he came up with the idea when the Soviet government agreed to pay him on a per person basis, which okay. means at one point the Soviet government was still better than U.S. insurance companies. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's so sad. And separate from all the spy stuff, at many Russian clinics, just again, during the 70s, 80s, patients would often have to undergo various testing, just like we do for things like cholesterol, iron, whatever. But the process for them is they would register at a desk and choose whatever test you want from a menu. EKG, x-rays, blood tests, you have to know what you want. Then you get a number like at a deli, go wait outside the room where the test is conducted, undergo the test, then you go back to the registration desk and sign up for a doctor, take another number, and then go through a similar procedure for the doctor to interpret your test. Then you go back a third time to do all this to get whatever medicine the doctor prescribed you. And that is what it was like even as late as the mid-90s. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's scary that that came up all the way to like the mid-90s. I didn't say it wasn't like that anymore. That's just as far back as I was (laughs) looking for the Cold War. Sure. Okay. So if any of our Russian listeners would like to chime in and fill me in on what the situation is like, we'd love to hear it. But, you know, that's that's all I have to work off of. So you mentioned a few things. Let's start with truth serum. Okay. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Have you ever heard, Santosh? Well, we'll back up even a little bit more. Have you ever heard of a spy program known as MK Ultra or any of the MK programs? Uh, so I don't know what MK is as a whole. Um, MK Ultra, I know about very famously from the movie slash book Men Who Stare at Goats. Um, so I believe it was about trying to uh, so the the book and the movie were a little weird, right? It was about to like trying to harness like psychic powers and stuff in people, but I think the way they went about doing that was a little bit unorthodox. <laughs> All right. So let's, we're going to go back to the oldest version of this, your men who stare at goats. All of yeah. this began in the 1950s with project artichoke. Uh, what? No. Artichoke. That's was not a, the name of a thing. <laughs> it was, and it came about, from a New York City criminal, Ciro Terranova, nicknamed the Artichoke King, but that's not important right what? now. <laughs> that's not important right now? What do you mean? <laughs> okay. All right, all right, all right. Okay. Project Artichoke, yeah. for any military history buffs, was a mind control program that gathered information together with the intelligence divisions of the Army, Navy, Air Force, and FBI with the scope of the project 
being, can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature such as self-preservation? So basically, Project Artichoke was to create like the movie The Manchurian Candidate. All right. Now, Artichoke, interestingly enough, spun out to research the potential of dengue fever and other diseases. And a declassified artichoke memo read, not all viruses have to be lethal. The objective includes those to act as short and long-term incapacitating agents. There was a whole branch just studying dengue and other vector-borne diseases to see could they be spread and how. And you know how we definitely would never, ever run tests on our citizens. (laughs) Well, several CIA documents, as well as the finding of a 1975 congressional committee, reveal that three sites in Florida, Key West, Panama City, and Avon Park, as well as as two other locations in central Florida, where I guess they felt no one would notice weird stuff, uh, were used for experiments with mosquito-borne dengue fever and other insect substances. About 150,000 mosquitoes were just dropped in paper bags designed to open on impact with the ground. Each bag held around 1,000 insects, all of who had been infected mostly with dengue, some also carrying yellow fever, to just study population distributions. We've talked in the past about diseases that could be weaponized. Santosh... Without knowing anything else about this, how do you feel like dengue would do for incapacitating people? Dengue is really, really awful. The communicability is high. So it's not a hundred percent that if you have a a mosquito that has dengue that you're also going to catch it, but it's a pretty high communicability. And even if it's not high the first time, then it's still a pretty good chance that like it'll because the mosquitoes will bite several times. Right. So it's a pretty good bet that it'll deliver to somebody else. And then if you're in a place where you have mosquitoes that can carry dengue anyway, then those other mosquitoes can sting or bite sick people and pick up dengue and start mass circulation. That's number one. Number two If you start endemic circulation, uh, dengue is kind of a two-hit disease. There are people who can get sick the first time around. But the really bad thing is if you have antibodies against dengue from one strain, so traditionally there's four strains, one, two, three, four, and if you're already sick from one and then you get infection from another one, a separate one, then your body overreacts to the second hit and can cause this horrible shock or hemorrhagic fever where you can get really sick and die. And the worst part about all of that is that there is no cure at all. And back then, of course, there was no vaccine. So you just, you basically have to hope to hell that you're, you have a good uh, intensive care unit, uh, really good doctors and a healthy dose of luck because that's just so awful. That's disgusting. So these were some of the covert things going on. Now they didn't just The CIA wasn't just absolute jerks to the general populace. They also did this to each other. And now, eventually, Project Artichoke became more focused on the brainwashing aspect. 
and uh-huh. there became and turned into MK Ultra. Well, the Office of Security used LSD or acid uh, in mm-hmm. interrogations, but Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, the chemist who directed MK Ultra, thought it could be used in covert operations. Since its effects were temporary, he thought it could be given to high-ranking officials and affect the course of important meetings, speeches, etc., which, to be fair, if you give acid to somebody and they have to give a speech, I imagine it's probably not going to go as expected. Uh, yeah. But since he realized there was a difference in testing the drug in a lab versus using it in the field, he initiated a series of experiments where LSD was given to people in normal settings without warning. We're going to talk about oh. we're going to talk about some of this stuff in a moment, but just because of the brainwashing, listen to some of the tests. At first, everyone in technical services tried it. A typical experiment was two people in a room where they just observed each other for hours and took notes. Okay. All right. Oh, well, okay. I, that's semi-okay if you get consents and you tell people what they're doing. But As okay. the experimentation progressed through the office, a point arrived where outsiders and even occasional office workers would be drugged with no explanation whatsoever, and surprise acid trips became something of an occupational hazard among CIA operatives. Dude. <laughs> okay. Brainwashing, the idea that started out as brainwashing, we're not really going to go into the finer details a ton, but ended up diverging into what are essentially two fields. One being hypnosis, the harmless and delightful party trick and occasional therapeutic tool, and the other being torture. Okay. Uh, All right. Both methods are designed to subsume the subject's overlying personality and then allow something else to be done with it once they have been broken down. In hypnosis, you're simply trying to allow the conscious mind to rest so subconscious thoughts, fears, memories, whatever can bubble up or so you can replace the original personality with a feeling of calm, such as for hypnotic surgery or things like that. Uh, okay. in, in torture, you're using a lot of physiological stressors to essentially get the person to have a dissociative state. And once they're in a dissociative state, you can then make suggestions or ask questions in such a way that presumably they will provide answers you are looking for. Although all research has shown that torture doesn't produce reliable confessions. That's really all we need to say on brainwashing. Sure. Um, But let's talk a little bit more about some of the other things that would pop up in spy movies. Truth serums. Multiple movies have covered this. They slow the speed at which your body sends messages to your brain. So it's more difficult to perform high functioning tasks such as concentrating on a single activity like lying. It's you know, the, the idea being that you need concentration to think up a good lie and to stick with it. As portrayed in the movies, doesn't really exist. I'm sorry. I hate to be a killjoy this early in the season. Okay. But, but the history of attempting to develop it is actually pretty neat. And we do have some equivalents. So the earliest earliest truth serum such as it was was scopolamine 
first promoted mm-hmm. by a Dallas, Texas obstetrician, Dr. Robert House, in 1922, and he was also the first one to call it truth serum. Oh, okay, okay. So, Santosh, what does scopolamine do? Uh, scopolamine is commonly used as a anti-nausea treatment. It's a cholinergic pathway. Cholinergic. Thank you so much. So, yeah, it's it works on, just as you said, the cholinergic pathway. You, It's the little patch that you usually get to put behind your ear. And the reason that you put it there is because there's no hair follicles, so it can be absorbed through the skin into your bloodstream in order to reduce seasickness. Yeah, now it can also, so it can calm nausea, uh, handle an upset stomach, and apparently, just based on a casual review through the American Psychological Association, be used to hypnotize chickens. Sorry, chickens? Yeah, you heard me. <laughs> okay. I mean, right. they, they use it more for tonic immobility, to calm chickens for transport. But, oh, sure. Like that's I <laughs> Okay, that makes more sense. And I was like, are you trying to convince the chicken to do something? And I was just like, what? Why? Okay, all right, fine. So it's tonic immobility, but yeah. I just but the paper itself calls it chicken hypnosis. Yeah. And it got me thinking about your men who stare at goats. I think it's a fun movie. It's not a great movie, is it? So it's it's one of these movies that's like it's fun for a lark kind of on a, a weekend or, you know, it's, I have nothing to do kind of thing. Now, if so, you overdose on scopolamine, yeah. what kind, what's the anticholinergic syndrome that you're going to see? Uh, so I think anticholinergic, if I remember, this is all the way going back to medical school now, but I hope. I, so I think this is the one, Josh, pr- Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the one dry as a bone, mad as a hatter, blind as a bat, like those things? Yes. Yeah. So we we used to remember all the sayings that you talk about come in all the time. So blind as a bat is your eyes dilate so you can't see very well. Mad as a hatter mean you go a little crazy and hallucinating and that kind of thing. Or you become, a- you become confused and disoriented. Right, right. Dry as a bone is you can't, you stop sweating, right? Because if you, if you're anticholinergic, then your, your sweat glands don't work. Um, oh, red is a beat because you flush all over. Um, and then what's hot as a, hot as a temperature goes up. Your temperature goes up, but it's hot as a something. Uh, hot as a hamburger? No, that's not the term. So hot, hot damn. Yeah. Yeah, There you go. Hot as a hot damn. Yeah, how does so, <laughs> so all those things. So you become hot and red and your eyes are dilated. You get jittery too. Um, and you you can't see and you go a little bit loopy. All, all oh, and, great- and if you let it go for long enough, you die. Well, up until that last one, those all <laughs> sounded like ideal situations for a supposed truth serum. Right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. You're going to okay. be dry, blushing, and babbling. Uh, sure. Also, it'll largely wipe a subject's memory clean so they wouldn't remember anything they said after waking up. Sure. So, throughout the 1920s and 30s, police departments in the U.S. would use it on suspects, and it was really the drug of choice for many back in the day. 
for various nefarious reasons. The tree, which naturally produces scopolamine, grows wild around the Colombian capital, and in fact, and in fact, is so famous in the Colombian countryside that mothers will warn their children not to fall asleep beneath the yellow and white flowers. Do you want to know what the Colombian name for the scopolamine tree is? What's the Colombian name for the scopolamine tree? The borrachero, or the get you drunk, as the the pollen alone is said to conjure up strange dreams. And of course, there were urban legends, which I could not verify, that women in Colombia would smear it on their skin for men to lick them. And then when the men got loopy and confused and sort of calmed, they would rob them afterward. So that was the very first truth serum. Now, the next one, and the one that everyone's probably more familiar with from film and television, is sodium pentothal, which is a barbiturate. Barbiturates? Okay, barbiturates are used for reducing anxiety a little bit. It is a calming type of medication. Uh, We no longer really use it in medicine because it's what's called a dirty drug. So... We're trying to move away right now in medicine from older medications that have broad side effects to more targeted medications, especially in the arena of neurology and psychiatry, because it's it's difficult to target very specific actions on the brain without having problems in other parts of the brain, really. So barbiturates really were... An older drug, I'd say. I don't know if you still use it in adult practice. It's pretty much gone out of pediatric practice. But they've been replaced by other anxiolytics like benzodiazepines in order to help a person calm down from if they're anxious or scared or if they're in pain, especially post-operatively. They can also be used because they kind of, uh, they're downers, for lack of a better term. I I know benzodiazepines can be, but I don't know if barbiturates can be used for stopping seizures, maybe? Am I wrong about that? They they can be, yeah. So they slow your body's process to transmit information to your brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're common, or they were common prescription meds for pain relief, sedation, muscle relaxation, and as a side effect, lowering blood pressure and uh, neurologic emergencies. And they might still be used in neurology, but you're right. We don't really see them. Until 2011, uh, sodium pentothal was used as an anesthetic because patients would usually pass out within 30 to 45 seconds after taking the drug. However, it has not been available in the U.S. since 2011 because the Mm -hmm. Italian company that makes the drug said they were ceasing production because they did not want it used in executions in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I remember hearing about this and it still kind of disgusts me that we and and very frankly uh, just wearing my opinion on my sleeve it disgusts me that we have capital punishment uh in this country uh the way that we do but uh, it's uh it's used exactly right for lethal injection and that's why the, the companies that used to make it. And so it's been kind of an interesting reason why we actually can't do executions in this country for a while is because we can't get sodium pentothal. And there are no doctors 
thankfully, so far that will get on board in order to prescribe it or to write guidelines for lethal injections, which is, of course, the right thing to do. So, so one of the biggest problems with using truth serum, aside from the fact that you know we don't have anything that will make you tell the truth, it's just, again, with this one, sodium pentothal, you would pass out at a certain point, and then you'd feel very relaxed. You'll notice none of that was anything about lying. It was sedation, muscle relaxation, pain relief. So the biggest problem with using truth serum for interrogation, whether in a spy situation or a military one, is that most of the drugs being given are going to give you a warm, friendly feeling of a subject toward their interrogator. Combined with the severe disorientation from things like scopolamine or barbiturates, this will just lead somebody to tell them whatever they think you want to hear, which could be true or not. Now, interestingly, this brings up a different study done in 2005, where a couple researchers at the University of Zurich wanted to examine trust-promoting effects. So rather than interrogate people from a spy standpoint, they gave them a drug oxytocin to 130 college students, uh, some of who were given, I love this, a snort of the drug while others received a placebo. <laughs> so they did an intranasal? Yeah, but don't you just feel like there were two researchers, like very, very Swiss walking around like, pardon me, college student, would you like to snort this? <laughs> Well, one of them will have an effect. The other is just placebo sugar. Which will you get? (laughs) One makes you taller and one makes you small. I'm frankly shocked they only had 130 college students willing to participate in this experiment. The reason this all breaks my heart, genuinely, Josh, is we had Nuremberg trials specifically for this <laughs> we had uh we we fought a war over this shit <laughs> for swiss In people f- to offer you a tray filled with nose powder no 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 to not do these kind of experiments on humans <laughs> so you don't bad. even you don't even know what the experiment was yet you just know that it involved two are they dressed like butlers or in lab coats what's your mental you picture of these two scientists i don't care you're doing things to people without their consent or without the passage through an ethics board well i don't know how to get a hold of them to ask what they're wearing they're probably dead <laughs> in 2005 you know what? It's more than likely if it was 2005 that this passed an ethics board and that these these people were actually consented and they knew what they were doing. All right, fine. Let's get out of the <laughs> Abbott and Costello routine. <laughs> okay. In 2005, researchers at the University of Zurich asked these college students, after giving them a snort of a drug, to play an investing game in which they had to trust a stranger to give them back a portion of their winnings. The students who were given oxytocin were found to be more trusting with their money, and half of them transferred all of the money, twice as many as students who took the placebo. Therefore, future truth serum research was felt to 
lean in that direction as oxytocin builds trust rather than just loosens tongues as the sedating medications do. There is a drug that builds trust. It is it is interesting. Now, it makes a lot of sense because this is the same type of thing as a, for instance, that in a very dirty way, alcohol can do this. It makes you a little bit more suggestible, a little bit more open to things you wouldn't normally do, uh, a little bit open to risk. So if you have... You know, if you wouldn't normally do something like, uh, uh, I don't know, parachuting, you know, skydiving or something like that, you can take a bracing shot of, uh, you know, alcohol or something like that. It'll make you feel better. So I'm not surprised that there are medications that can make you a little bit more loosey-goosey and trusting. Now, the big reveal behind all the truth serums is that the reason they had any positive effect at all is that all of these drugs were eminently exploitable in interrogation because you emerge from the narcosis feeling that you have revealed a great deal even when you have not this holds true across most of the anesthetic medications and even alcohol uh how often have you woke up and thinking oh, I definitely said some things I shouldn't have or done something I probably shouldn't, if only I could remember. Well, uh, I don't drink, but yeah. Okay, fine. Eat corn then. I don't know. Whatever people yeah. from where you are do. <laughs> I'm weird even for Iowa, dude, because go on that's... A, go on a corn binge. No, no. Well, you'd have grain alcohol, right? Because that's... A, you just <laughs> distill it down. But there's nothing to do in a lot of places out there. And underage drinking was a huge thing out in the Midwest and in rural uh, United States. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Varsity Blues, it's a good little insight into what high schoolers get into. I was just a goody two-shoes little Indian boy. Well, that is the truth serum, the one big one there. Next, let's talk about another big popular spy trope, the cyanide pill, or the the equivalent suicide capsule. Um, Ooh, yeah, that's that's creepy. Now, traditionally, how do you picture you know a henchman or somebody taking the cyanide pills? Oh, um. That's it's one of my favorite scenes of all time, although it's almost definitely a ripoff from other spy movies and stuff. But it's Captain America, the first Avenger. Mm-hmm. You remember, Josh? And it's um, it's the guy. Uh, it's, uh, if you cut off one head to grow in its place and then he runs his tongue like over his you can't see it, so I have to do it for audio. He runs his tongue over his teeth in the back, scoops out a false tooth, and then he crunches down on it, and it it explodes like a gusher in his mouth, and he goes, Hail Hydra! And he goes down, which is, that scene is preceded by one of the other coolest scenes in Captain America First Avenger, where Steve first discovers his powers that he can run super fast, so he actually overruns himself on a turn and smashes into a window, and then he just decides to jump after a friggin' submarine and swims into it and rips open the pod 
<laughs> I thought that was so cool. Anyway, what were we talking about? Well, as long as you're going to bring up Captain America and Nazis, the history of suicide capsules is murky, but did in fact exist. Not yeah. not the capsule hidden in a tooth, and we'll get to okay. that in a moment. But uh, Himmler, a senior Nazi commander, used a cyanide capsule to commit suicide. Actually, several Nazis did. Um, oh, wow. But a flight surgeon gave the pilot of the Enola Gay cyanide capsules to distribute to the crew in the event they crash-landed in Japan after dropping the atomic bomb. And Washington, D.C. has a spy museum, which I don't know if it's open right now, but they have Cold War-era eyeglasses that have a cyanide pellet because those pellets are actually a little bit too big to put in a false tooth. You could hide film or trackers or radios, but not cyanide. It's just too large a pill. Um, And for folks flying after the Enola Gay, concerns about cyanide gas accidentally escaping inside the cockpit or flight suit of pilots led them to develop a fish-based neurotoxin that could be self-injected with a needle, and that was curare. Um, Right. But... Even though most of the time in movies, cyanide pills were thought to provide a quick and painless death. Uh, You Mm -hmm. want to tell us how that would actually go, Santosh? Cyanide actually causes, uh, unless I'm wrong, it causes uh, a decoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, I believe, in the mitochondria. So it's the creepiest thing ever because you can have adequate circulation, right? And you, you have plenty of blood going around to everywhere that you need to. You have adequate oxygen intake in order to, uh, you know, have metabolism going on. However, that little, uh, and I always have to say it this way, powerhouse, house, house, of, of, the, 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 cell, cell, cell. If you don't have the ability for the mitochondria to utilize oxygen, then what happens is your energy in your body literally just is used up and runs out. So as far as your muscles are concerned, your muscles will actually seize up because we use ATP to actually relax our muscles, not contract them. We use it some to contract, but ATP is actually used to Uh, to to relax the muscle actually to let it go so your muscles would go into rigor and more often than not that is the thing that will happen is that your diaphragm will actually get paralyzed and then you won't be able to draw a breath and if you were to try to support breathing and everything else you'd actually have to give a muscle relaxant um, to to relax everything otherwise you wouldn't be able to force air into the lungs even with something like a ventilator so it would almost be like tetanus right uh, but even if you got past that then the rest of like the brain and the heart and everything couldn't utilize energy there's no good solution for this there's no antidote it puts all your body's energy behind a locked door and throws away the key so when a person ingests a lethal dose of cyanide which can be as small as 100 to 300 milligrams Mm -hmm. by the way uh, a paper clip's about a gram so it is a tenth of a paper clip 
So when someone ingests a lethal dose of cyanide, their body stops producing ATP, so the muscles don't get the energy they need, you can't breathe, and you'll have a heart attack. And the length of time it takes for cyanide to kill a person ranges from around two to five minutes, although I imagine if you were subject to it, it feels much longer because they are fully conscious and experiencing every bit of the chemical effects. Yeah, so essentially, I mean, they feel the same thing as paralysis at the end of it, that you cannot draw in a breath. And that's where that kind of like foaming, shuddering type of thing comes from because your secretions, you know, you can't swallow them. So, the, And then your diaphragm freezes. So I'm pretty sure the Hydra agent, if it was cyanide, he wouldn't have died that quick. But he also wouldn't have been able to communicate. You're not getting out a smarmy one-liner as you go. Right. Unless right. you unless you bite down and then immediately. Like you have to have that ready. And yeah. who spends yeah. that much time thinking of witty parting line? Well, maybe hench hench people. Well <laughs> I mean, he clearly had one in the chamber. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was totally like Hail Hydra and then the you know, cut off two heads in another grow. So someone like coached him through it. <laughs> Can you imagine it's like, all right, and here's your cyanide pill. Remember to, you know, give him the little speech just before you die. If you cut off one head, two will come back and, you know, hail Hydra. Make sure to put your own spin on it. Okay, off you go. That's Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely got to be a line from corporate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because, because in a real world situation, uh, one of the doctors charged with violating medical ethics by administering these – took place in South Africa near the end of apartheid. Um, a South African physician, Basson, gave commanders of special forces units just a bottle filled with sufficient number of capsules to distribute to soldiers in the units. And the reason he was charged with violating medical ethics was not because he provided suicide pills or cyanide capsules, but because he gave for the whole unit to one person, he did not personally examine the individual soldiers. Therefore, he did not assess if they had mental illnesses that are common, such as post-traumatic stress disorder or any other stressors that could put them at risk. I find it very interesting that the medical review board's like, we're okay with you giving out suicide pills, but we're going to charge you with an ethics failure because you didn't examine the health of these people who could potentially be killing themselves. Uh, gosh. But the scarier thing, honestly, is that someone also has to pack and make these pills, right? They don't just appear out of nowhere. So there has to be a, a technician somewhere who has to very, very carefully be handling cyanide and packing it into this shatter you know, this easily shatterable container. And then you have to have someone like a, an orofacial or a dental surgeon implant this thing into a spot where you can kind of scoop it up out of your mouth and bite down on it if you hide it in a false tooth or, you know, give it to the person in such a way where you don't accidentally crack it and get it onto your skin or in your mouth or something like that. Well, because cyanide is pretty common. I mean, it's it was used to develop photographs, which most spies sure. would have had to do. So a lot of them would yeah. have already had the salts handy. 
Um, it's used to exterminate pests and vermin in ships and buildings and to make paper, textiles, and plastics. Uh, it's also felt to be somewhat corrosive. So I think in one of the James Bond movies, someone bites down again on that cyanide pill and it dissolves their jaw. That would not actually happen. No, no, that's... I guess there are corrosives and stuff, but that would be a shitty, shitty method for suicide because that kind of thing would erode your jaw or skin or something, but... I guess it would be corrosive to be like an upper airway up, you know, thing where you choke, you know, on your tracheal secretions, but that would be like, you'd have to be pretty sadistic to suggest suicide by that method. Now for the last one, since you keep focusing on these, on these shitty situations, I want to talk to you about one of the last resorts when you've reached the very end of your spy kit and that of course was one of the last displays i got to see at the dc spy museum the rectal toolkit uh you know all the different things you picture using to break out of (laughs) wait what i mean uh i mean you tell me i think i understand what you mean like it's a toolkit that fits up the rectum right it's not a it's not like a kit of tools for the rectum. I mean, I guess that really depends on how you choose to use it. <laughs> rectum? I barely even know them. <laughs> Sorry. But it was a tightly sealed pill. Uh, yeah, yeah, it usually is. <laughs> Sorry. Pill-shaped <laughs> container full of tools that could aid an escape from various sticky situations. <laughs> A lockpick, a file, a corkscrew, you know, the kind of stuff, the kind of stuff you would bake into a prison cake, but there's no cake here. Just... I'm trying to be like, the guy's actually scared out of his mind, and what do you think about, like, when, you know, everybody who's scared, they actually, like, pucker up, right? It's like, okay, relax, relax, <laughs> trying to get himself... Like, it's a tense situation anyway, and he's got to relax his butthole. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, the calming exercises you have to go through to get this thing out when you're actually fearing for your life and you need the kit? (laughs) That's another situation. It's another thing from corporate. (laughs) It's just like... Q hands you the thing. It's like, now, remember to relax. (laughs) All the parts of spy training, they never taught you. Oh, my God. (laughs) It had to be made with materials that could not splinter. (laughs) Or create sharp edges. Oh, God. (laughs) It also had to have a very tight seal so (laughs) nothing could seep in or (laughs) or poke out. (laughs) Oh, my God. But you still you still had to be able to shit this thing out. And then somehow this tightly sealed container You would have to, with, I'm imagining, crap-covered hands, because I'm imagining you don't really have the time to find, like, a paper towel 
You'd have to find a way to open it. <laughs> so, so you want it tight enough and sealed enough so it's like it maintains integrity and then he shits this thing out or she and then you have to be able to open it. How? You can just look it up on the Spy Museum website and it will show you all the tools that came inside and honestly it looks more like one of those old Kodak rolls of film things. Sure. Okay. All right. I imagine that just the act of squeezing it out would cause the object to fall in half. So you wouldn't have to be quite as handsy aside from maybe pulling a little bit of it apart. However, it felt like a good place to bring this particular episode to an end. Aha! <laughs> Don't worry, though, folks. We have a lot of much more medically aligned topics coming up this season. It's just, you know me, in October. I like to have some fun with it. So, yeah. uh, that's you, it. you didn't get your fix in Comic-Con. This is why all this is coming out now. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> But we will have some really exciting episodes planned for you this season. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and others. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, leave us ratings or reviews, donate to our Patreon, or you know, visit any of the links in our show notes below. And until next time, as always, stay safe and happy travels. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.